Some people are followed by good fortune, some by bill collectors. Continuing their further perils, Stan and Ollie are followed by a goat. Nearby, a pet shop owner discovers his prized goat has either strayed or been kidnapped. Meanwhile, Laurel and Hardy are adjusting to a new roommate. Quiet, cautions Ollie. The landlord sleeps right under us. If he finds a goat here, we're finished. Below, landlord Edgar Kennedy never counts sheep. He counts tenants being evicted. And a very warm welcome back to the Laurel and Hardy podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Vasey, the editor of the Laurel and Hardy magazine and the author of the forthcoming book, Laurel and Hardy Silence. And on today's show, we are taking our usual deep dive into one of Laurel and Hardy's classic comedies. And on this episode, episode 34, our attention turns to the boys' final silent short, Angora Love. Yes, we've reached the end of the silent era, and I must say, it's not without a little sadness. Don't get me wrong, I'm really excited to start covering the talkies, but we've been looking closely at Stan and Babe's silent period for the past, what, three and a half years, and this really feels like the end of an era. So to help me to draw the curtains on the boys' silent shorts, I've invited classic comedy aficionado Chris Sagan back to discuss not only our film in focus, Angora Love, but also to cast our gaze a little wider to see how Stan and Babe's contemporaries were faring in their transitions to sound pictures. But before we start, I want to thank you all for your messages, your emails, texts, tweets and comments over the past couple of months. Uh, And I'd also just like to share a few here. Now, the first one is an email from Laurie Pitts from Virginia in the USA, and she writes. I'd like to express my appreciation for everyone at Twice Two Media for all your guests and associates. Unlike those of you who saw Laurel and Hardy on TV during childhood, it wasn't until about two years ago when I was already in my 60s that I accidentally discovered them through the film Stan and Ollie. I understand that the movie has its detractors, but I found it to be a lovely story, beautifully filmed. Best of all, it prompted me to seek out the work of Laurel and Hardy. With just one viewing of Way Out West, I was hopelessly hooked and began looking for every one of their films and information about them. With no Sons of the Desert tents near me and no other Laurel and Hardy admirers with whom to share my thoughts, I felt rather alone and a little bit crazy. Then, a few months ago, I stumbled upon your podcast and it felt like finding a new set of friends. I was amazed to learn that I wasn't the only one who referred to Laurel and Hardy as the boys or who could feel their love for each other and for their audience. Thank you very much for the immensely entertaining and information-packed podcasts, for the beautiful magazine, and for connecting me with an amazing international community that shares a love of Laurel and Hardy. Your efforts are bringing much-needed positivity to our world. Please keep going. I'm listening and reading. Sincerely, Laurie Pitts. P.S. On my atoll, I'd like to have wrong again, toad in a hole, and blockheads. I'm still a beginner, so I probably need Laurel and Hardy, the magic behind the movies. Even so, I am looking forward to Laurel and Hardy's silence, as well as the other projected titles on the website. Best of luck with them. Laurie, thank you so much for that message. That really is uh, quite a touching message. And uh, it's just lovely to know that we are reaching out to you um, and, uh, and you're finding some connection through this community. So thank you so much for taking time to get in touch. And I hope you carry on enjoying the films. You've got so much to get through uh, and so, much, so, so many wonderful laughs uh, to enjoy. 
Uh, the second message comes from Andrew Center, um, and uh, he writes, Dear Patrick, I just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying the podcasts. The knowledge and enthusiasm of you and your guests makes for compulsive listening. I didn't start on the podcasts until only a couple of months ago, and since then I've been working my way backwards through the lot. I've got back as far as number five on Hal Roach with Craig Kalman, which I thought was the best one I've listened to. But I'll be running out soon, so keep up the good work. Best wishes, Andrew. Andrew, thanks so much for that. That's a, it's, a, it's a great message. I don't think I've heard anybody who's listening in reverse order. Um, so I'm glad to hear that the earlier episodes are still standing up and, and sounding good and enjoyable. So thank you so much. Uh, and finally, you may remember me mentioning on previous episodes one of our youngest listeners, 12-year-old Sammy. Well, Sammy recently turned 13, and I was thrilled to receive this voice message from him. I have had to cut it down a little bit, though, because it was a little bit too long to include the whole thing. Uh, but, but just take a listen to this. Hi, Patrick. I'm Sammy. They just turned 13-year-old who has been bombarding you with emails for several months now. And today I would like to share some ideas for future bonus podcast episodes. So, the first one I thought of was maybe Laurel and Hardy Animals. So it could have obviously Laughing Gravy or The Goats and Angora Love or Buddy, Buddy the Dog. Tell me that again. Now I know Randy did hint at maybe wanting to do a bonus podcast on Marvin Hatley with you. Maybe you could do one also on Leroy Shield or like Laurel and Heidi Music in general. And I know you did do a one of the very first episodes, I think the fourth episode possibly, was you were talking to Craig Kalman about Hal Roach and you did it was like a Hal Roach special but maybe you could do a proper one about Hal Roach where it's just Hal Roach maybe but yeah those are some suggestions and I must say that every time there's a new podcast episode I'm like yes and my heart is always full with joy and the Laurel and Heidi podcast has really been a godsend I listen to it every night and have listened to every episode at least three or four times now and still never ever get bored and I've been into Laurel and Hardy for a good few years now since the first lockdown when all I would watch were western films and my dad showed me way out west I loved it and ever since then I have been an avid Laurel and Hardy and classic comedy fan in general and so it's great to share my interests with people like you so yeah thank you for the podcast my life wouldn't be the same without it. Goodbye. Goodbye. How fantastic was that? And what a wonderful message to receive. And it's so reassuring to know that if anything happens to me, I think the podcast is in safe hands. Uh, so happy birthday again, Sammy. And thank you for all the ideas and for taking the time to get in touch. It really, really made me smile. Uh, now, obviously, this podcast is free to enjoy, uh, but I have to say a huge thank you to those of you who've signed up to become patrons of the show. Um, <clears throat> I do like to keep these podcasts free from distracting and annoying adverts. So my patrons are my sponsors and, uh, and they enable me to keep this show going in this way. So um, this month, we welcome to the podcast Michael Thomas, Brett Prather, John Riley, George Agnos, Paul Petru. Matt Holt, who's one of our previous guests, of course, Scott Blaze, Chris Johnson, Joe Castagnetti, and Bob Stryker. 
So all these new patrons now have access to all the exclusive podcasts and bonus segments, uh, as well as other benefits depending on which tier they joined. Now, if you'd like to become a patron of the Laurel and Hardy podcast from as little as the cost of a cup of coffee per month uh, and receive these extra podcasts and even a gift subscription to the Laurel and Hardy magazine, then just visit www.patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Laurel and Hardy podcast. Or you can just click on the link that I'll put in the show notes. So that's everything. There isn't any more. It's time to push the goat under your bed, because I think I can hear the landlord coming. And today's film and focus is Angora Love. It was filmed March 8th to March 14th, 1929. It was released on December 14th, 1929. Produced by Hal Roach, directed by Lewis R. Foster, and photographed by George Stevens. The first quarter of 1929 was a period of vast and transformative change at the Hal Roach Studios. The in-house craftsmen under the supervision of Thomas Benton Roberts and the technical direction of Victor Talking Machine Company's Elmer Regis had been building and installing the facilities and equipment necessary to make sound pictures for several months. It was an exciting and nervy time in equal measure for all. The unsettling atmosphere was also not helped by the loss of familiar faces and leading positions on the lot. Leo McCary, the once steady hand at the studio's rudder, still hadn't and never would be replaced. However, one vacancy was filled, that of the studio's head of publicity. Replacing Ray Coffin was a lady named Eleanor Packer. Packer had recently relocated to Hollywood from Columbus, Ohio, with no job to go to and no contacts in the movie business. Still, she did have a college degree in journalism and an attitude to succeed. She telephoned all the studios until she secured a position at United Artists in the publicity department for Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks. Shortly afterwards, she left to take up a position with MGM as head of publicity for the Hal Roach studio. This was a wise move as neither Pickford nor Fairbanks, two of the biggest and most popular stars of the silent movie screen, would succeed in transitioning into talking pictures. So poorly received were Pickford and Fairbanks' first talkies that almost overnight audiences turned their backs on the couple who had undeniably been, up until then, the king and queen of Hollywood. This industry-wide change was undiscerning, non-discriminatory and could be downright brutal. Reputations counted for nothing. No one, it appeared, was safe. Having spent the past 12 months developing their Stan and Ollie characters and crafting their very distinctive comedy style, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, new kids on the block turned conquerors of Hollywood, could see their new empire being dismantled before their eyes. Were Stan and Ollie worried? Quote, Having built their fame and their technique on the art of pantomime and exaggeration, they viewed with ever-increasing alarm the coming of the talking picture. Together, one day, they walked down the street of the Hal Roach studio lot and stood before the skeleton of the first soundstage. Silently, they watched the workmen and engineers running here and there, engaged in the business of building the instrument of an entirely new form of entertainment. Well, I guess I'll be looking for a good job as a janitor or something, Stan sighed. This is our end, Oliver. Rotund Oliver nodded his head in agreement. Yep, he too sighed. And that was from The Picture Goer, October 1929. 
Whilst acknowledging the jocular tone of resignation in their words, Stan, Babe and their employer Hal Roach arguably had reason to be quietly optimistic that the team would handle the coming transition to sound pictures. Not only did both Stan and Babe have stage experience, but Laurel and Hardy's style of comedy was very visual and wouldn't need to rely on funny dialogue. In several interviews given to various trade papers leading up to the studio's conversion, Hal Roach made numerous statements about how sound would never replace pantomime in comedies. Instead, he thought it could be used effectively to complement the established form of visual on-screen action. They would soon find out whether Mr Roach's predictions were accurate or not. For the time being though, and for the last time, it was business as usual of the silent variety. The boys' final silent comedy, Angora Love, began filming on March 8, 1929, and took just six days to complete. The premise, although simple, was at least an original one for the boys. An escaped goat attaches itself to the pair and will not leave them alone. During an interview with John McCabe, Laurel and Hardy's official biographer, Stan described the film. The picture really had no plot, just that goat, but we sure got a lot of footage out of him. I give a piece of cookie to the goat and he wants more so he follows us around. We try every conceivable way to get rid of him but to no use. We hid, we walked backward, we disguised ourselves, nothing helped. We finally brought the goat to our room because the word had spread around that the goat had been stolen and we didn't want to be arrested as goat nappers. The comedy in our room consisted mainly of the goat eating the stuffing from the furniture and babe's pants among other things. We gave it a bath, went to bed with it, had trouble with the landlord over it. Later, when sound came, we did a version of the same idea, but substituted the chimpanzee for the goat. That was the chimp, one of the liveliest comedies we've ever done. End quote. Contrary to Stan's recollection of the goat being male, the animal's character was actually a female named Penelope. This name would be given to another animal character, a black crow in the boys' 1941 feature Great Guns. This short is the first of Stan and Babe's films to use an animal as a central plot device, but it would not be the last. As well as 1932's The Chimp, Angora Love is also the obvious inspiration for their popular two-reeler Laughing Gravy, a relatively blatant remake of their silent swan song, but replacing the goat with a dog. Angora Love is another one of the boys' shorts that is fairly overlooked today but it's important to note that it is the source from which two of their more popular comedies sprang. Further, as well as the considerable material reused in the remakes, several notable gags were lifted and recycled for use in other later shorts. First, there's the scene in which the pair sit side by side on the edge of the bed, and Ollie mistakenly lifts Stan's leg across his own. He massages Stan's foot, thinking it's his, even feeling the relief of his actions until he spots his error. This gag was reused in their th 1931 Foreign Legion parody, Bow Hunks. Another notable sequence lifted from Angora Love is where Ollie is trying to hang his clothes on the back of the closet door, only to find Stan keeps beating him to it, item by item. This was reused and extended for better effect, more famously in Be Big, also released in 1931. A number of the studio stills taken to promote the film add weight to Stan's memories of additional scenes being shot but that were not used, in which the boys attempt to outwit and outrun the goat. Interestingly, one of these stills, very likely a posed shot rather than a deleted scene, shows cameraman George Stevens working in a ticket booth whilst being flanked by Stan, Ollie and Penelope. 
Adding a little menace to the comedy is Stan and Ollie's landlord, played by Edgar Kennedy, returning for his second of three back-to-back shorts with the boys. In an early title card, Kennedy is described as a killer, emphasising the need for the goat to remain a secret. As luck would have it, however, the landlord's bedroom is located directly underneath that of our heroes. There follows a continual series of gags that ultimately and rudely disturb the landlord's slumber, prompting several angry visits and hasty attempts to secrete the uninvited house guest, or rather, house goat. Penelope is finally secreted under the boy's bed until a strange, unpleasant odour forces them to bathe her. This sequence is used almost in its entirety in Laughing Gravy, with Stan moving the tin bath to one side just as Ollie pours water in, soaking the floor instead. The water drips through onto Kennedy's sleeping face in the room below. As the boys are bathing Penelope, there's a knock at the door. Assuming Kennedy's behind the door, the boys hide the goat in panic and Ollie pushes Stan's head under the water, pretending to wash his hair. However, the door opens and in walks fellow resident Charlie Hall, not the landlord. Charlie apologises for knocking at the wrong room and disappears. Eventually, Kennedy does enter the room and Stan is the first to see him. Even though the goat is visible, Stan grabs Ollie's head and forces it under the water in his naive, childlike mentality. This worked once before, surely it'll work again. As with many of the team's silent comedies, the finale returns to the tried, tested and arguably overutilised reciprocal destruction ending. Due to the vagueness of the scripted ending, it appears that the water fight finale was improvised on the set. Ollie attempts to throw the bathwater over Stan, but misses and soaks Kennedy. Kennedy grabs a bucket of water and aims at Ollie, but hits Stan. Charlie Hall appears and gets a soaking by mistake. He throws water over Kennedy, who attempts to return the favour, but blindly soaks a newly arrived cop, played by Harry Bernard. The drenched cop then spies the goat, which had since been reported stolen, assumes that Kennedy is the thief, and marches him and the goat away. Finally, left alone in their sopping wet room, the boys agree that they never want to see another goat again. And then they witness three baby goats emerge from underneath their bed. And with that, Laurel and Hardy's silent movie era fades to black. Whilst the majority of Angora Love was filmed within the controlled environment of a roach set and on the studio's backlot, the film does contain some action shot on location in Culver City. In the scene where Stan and Ollie first encounter Penelope, the boys attempt to flee from the goat in front of the row of shops located at 3808 and 3812 Main Street. Today, although Main Street and the row of shops still exist, the shop frontages all appear to have been redeveloped. Once completed, Angora Love suffered the same fate as the picture before it, Bacon Grabbers. It was held back from release for about eight months. By the time audiences could finally see Penelope's adventure with the boys, talking pictures had already conquered Hollywood. Before the arrival of the talkies, the lifespan of Hal Roach's comedy shorts was around three years, the prints making their way from one theatre to another across the country. However, such was the speed and scale of the demand for all talking pictures that the programming of silent shorts was quickly abandoned. Despite its waning appeal and short release life, Angora Love did not disappoint audiences and theatre operators who exhibited it. Quote, A knockout again! When the boys gave the goat a bath, it brought down the house. That was from Central Theatre, Selkirk, Manitoba, in Exhibitors Herald World. One of those crazy things that makes everyone laugh. 
That goat must surely have belonged to the Navy. He does hate water. That was the San Juan Theatre, Friday Harbour, Washington. First one of these we have had for six months or more, and how they did clap when the title appeared on the screen. Best comedy we've had since the last Laurel Hardy. Practically as good as their previous only silent comedies, and there are but a couple of places where one notices the absence of sound. This comedy saved our final programme from being a washout. Glad we had something extra good for the last show. And that was the Screenland Theatre in Nevada. A shooting wrapped on March 14th, 1929, the curtain fell on Stan and Babe's silent movie careers. The team's trajectory had never wavered from the moment the two actors were paired in 1927. Their comedies grew in popularity and the characters became household names worldwide. The duo were discovered, created and developed in a purely visual medium, an art form that was dying. Yet the practices, techniques and downright funny business learned in that same doomed environment would be their salvation and ensure the team were equipped to handle all the challenges and changes that would threaten their longevity in the years ahead. Although Laurel and Hardy became even funnier in talking pictures, Stan always felt that silent films were the best format for the team's comedy. Quote, Personally, I think the silent films were more effective for Laurel and Hardy, but sound was of great value in enhancing the effects. Dialogue elim eliminated a lot of action and sight gags. I always feel that action speaks louder than words. Sight gags had to be planned. They required timing and mechanics, and occasionally spontaneity would arise in the shooting of the scenes. End quote. And another quote, Frankly, I preferred the silence. We did have a script, but it didn't consist of the routines and gags. It outlined the basic story idea and was just a plan for us to follow. But when it came to each scene, we and the gagmen would work out ideas. Oh, a few gags were mentioned here and there in the script, but they were always worked out on the set. We'd rehearse them a few times and then shoot them. Some pictures came easy, but some didn't, because a lot of mechanical effects that were hard to do. Sometimes we would be on a gag and it wouldn't work, so we'd have to wait a couple of days to have the set rebuilt. Things that, like that meant delay. We never had a regular schedule, but just worked to get a good picture. The studio didn't mind, because in those days the salaries weren't much money and there weren't any unions and we never used a big cast. In many pictures, Hardy and I worked alone, except for a dog or something like that. End quote. Stan and Ollie not only transitioned to talkies, but they excelled in them and enjoyed more tremendous success than ever. Even the eventual demise of their favoured format, the two and three realists wouldn't hinder them as they effortlessly became feature-length movie stars. Remarkably, these so-called low-brow comedians refused to be derailed. But it must be remembered that no actor, artist or team could ever be successful without the demand from the theatre-goers. After all, this is how success is measured, and Laurel and Hardy's audiences craved their pictures. Stan and Ollie were not merely funny characters on the screen, they were much more than that. They were not simply liked by their audience, they were loved and adored. This is the secret ingredient that made Laurel and Hardy unique and timeless. This is how they endured all the industry-wide changes that killed off so many of their contemporaries. The boys became the viewers' best friends. That is why they were so successful, and this is why they continue to be so almost a century after their films were made. Once discovered, Laurel and Hardy are never forgotten. Ultimately, Stan and Ollie loved each other, 
and we couldn't help falling in love with them. The silent film era of Laurel and Hardy was only the first chapter of their incredible story. The best was still to come. With us today to round off Stan and Babe's silent era is returning guest and classic comedy aficionado from his home in Toronto, Canada. It's Chris again. So I'm happy and excited to say welcome back to the Laurel and Hardy podcast, Chris. Well, thank you, Patrick. I'm thrilled to be back. It's been, I'm actually doing it because you sent me the list of all the silent films. I'm doing the countdown of last time I talked to you. It would have been We Far Down, which was seven films ago. So there's been... It was seven. Yes, it was. I tell you what, I can't... I can't quite get over how fast this silent era has gone. We, I mean, we, we're finally here at Angora Love, um, and it doesn't—I mean, it doesn't seem two minutes since we were talking about um, love and weep and why girls love sailors or whatever it was, and uh, yeah. love and hisses. Um, so love yeah, hisses, it's, yeah. It's, it's flown by, absolutely flown by. The talkies seemed like a you know year. Well, it's been three years actually on the podcast, so it, it was years in the distance. But uh, yeah, it's gone very, very fast. So lovely to have you back, Chris. I always, I always, always look forward to chatting with you because I inevitably will learn something new about an area of classic comedy. Usually, not to do with Laurel and Hardy, which is great for me because I can go off and look at something else. So um, I've been looking at Larry yeah. Seaman. I'm going to pronounce it correctly, Larry Seaman, and also <laughs> I don't know if that's correct. <laughs> I'm going with Seaman now. <laughs> well, no, Stan, Stan pronounced it as Seaman. Uh, in okay. interviews so and he must have known because god he worked with the guy so uh well, i think i think babe did too in the um uh the ship's reporter interview ah uh, yes i think you might be right yeah oh, yeah. yeah so yeah. i think that's right. that's pretty good authority i think we'll we'll take yeah. that as read uh but yeah larry seaman harry langdon uh and uh and, and lots more besides so i'm yeah, i'm indebted to you for all for all of that so um i my ears are my ears are pricked up and ready to uh to absorb more from you today chris um well, so fingers, fingers crossed <laughs> today's um conversation we're going to talk about angora love it's obviously their last it's the silent era swan song um and so we'll get into talking about that film um in a little while um but what i always like to do is is to pick your brains and your knowledge on um all things um silent comedy classic comedy whilst we're here um so what i'd like to try and do is incorporate a little bit of a discussion about um Laurel and Hardy's contemporaries and what they were doing at this point, because this is a really crucial point, I think, in in well, mm -hmm. in movie history, isn't it? You know, it, it's it's absolutely yeah. crucial. And as Laurel and Hardy, as we know, absolutely went off into the stratosphere with the talkies, um, many many of us uh, were not having the same experience and shared the same fate. So I'd be just quite interested to have a little bit of a chat about that. Um, I think that mm -hmm. might be just quite a nice little um, rounding off of, of that whole period, if that's okay. That sounds swell to me. I think it's good too. Yes, so Angora Love um, filmed March 8th to March the 14th. It just taken a few days to film this one, but it wasn't released until December the 14th. This was one of those that uh, sat on the shelf, Chris, for, uh, for a good while. And it again, I've said this before. You know, it, it begs the question: What did people actually think of it when it arrived? Because it was in the midst of some pretty decent talkies. Yeah, I don't. It's, it's a really good question. I, I think I read one of the reviews somewhere where, or theater owners just going, "Nah, we're not so keen on the, the silence anymore," right? And that's that's like within under really a year before talkies really caught on, right? So it had to seem really archaic at the time you know i think you know, there was like i read a thing where there was some chaplain reissues in the mid 20s 
of his mutuals, right? And she's like, oh, this is from the old timey days. <laughs> and it's just like, that was like seven years ago yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Right? But I think, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's just like today, if, if something seems archaic, it gets passed by. You know, I'd, I'd be interested if it, you know, got fewer bookings. Yeah. Than the other one. Well, I mean, certainly the 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 amount of reviews that you can find, um, you know, in Exhibitors Herald World, are a lot. There's a lot fewer of those than there were of, of most of the other silent films. <clears throat> the same with Bacon Grabbers, uh, and I think that's my wife. There were a few <clears throat> that I found. Uh, one which uh, was from Manitoba, actually, uh, a knockout again. Oh. When the boys gave the goat a bath, it brought down the house. Um, one of those crazy things that makes everyone laugh. That goat must surely have belonged to the Navy. He does hate water. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was from the San Juan Theatre in Washington. And uh, first one of these we've had for six months or more, and how they did clap when the title appeared on the screen. Best comedy we've had since the last Laurel Hardy. Practically as good as their previous only silent comedies, and there are but a couple of places where one notices the absence of sound. This comedy saved our final programme from being a washout. Glad we had something extra good for the last show. That was from Nevada, Screenland Theatre. Oh, that's interesting. So, say, I wonder if um, it was part of a talkie um, programme. Because it did have the sound on disc, right? So it's like it could have been a, a, a talkie feature. Possibly, yeah. Among that, Yeah, possibly too. so. Because when, when you were talking about Selkirk, Manitoba, it's a pretty small town, and I'm wondering if there's also theatres that weren't equipped. Well, that, that's the other thing, isn't it? Yeah, there were probably yeah. still quite a few at this point, because it's still early days, really, um, for the for the talkies. Uh, this is what was that from November uh, 2nd. But so, yeah, there must have been quite a number of provincial theatres that didn't have the setup. Mm -hmm. Well, and they were still doing the, the sorry, they're still doing the silent versions of the talkies on the custom as we are birthmarks were all done as silent versions as well of course yes of course yeah i was going to say the um there was one for bacon grabbers as well which i remember um saying you know, they, they loved the picture um but unfortunately it was another one of those with uh as another silent mm -hmm. film with an organ score which isn't very good now compared to the talkies they they were you know they weren't keen on this organ music anymore <laughs> for, well i heard the uh, the great debate about organ scores earlier in one of your oh in the podcasts. in the group yeah yes. <laughs> that's yes. right yeah yeah that was uh, so i'm not going to enter into that conversation although i will go and i will say i prefer the non-organ scores yes yeah yeah, it's I mean, it's a very subjective, you know, it's very subjective. There's no right or wrong on that one. Uh, I I certainly prefer the the um, orchestral scores, the synchronized mm -hmm. scores, because they are very tailored. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's 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 taste, isn't it? At the end of the day, who who knows? But uh, it's interesting to because I found that last clip just after we'd had that discussion in the in the group in the Blogheads group um, mm -hmm. about uh, about organ scores, and it was interesting that people even then. Some people liked them, some people didn't. So it's just one of those, isn't it? Um, I think organ scores are great as a performance. If you go to see a silent film and there's like the massive pipe organ uh, with all the bells and whistles and that sort of thing, that becomes an art form, right? Uh, but I think as, you know, if I were to buy, and I know there's advocates for it, I'm personally not one. Uh, anyone can attack me online if they want to for that. But um, if a DVD has an organ score or something on it, it's like, nah, you know, I I would prefer something else. Um, but to see an organ score live, that's a whole different experience. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> one, one, there's one thing that I must ask um, 
I don't know whether you know Ben Modell or Neil Brand or somebody, but <clears throat> what what kind of makes me wonder is when you see um, uh, there's a performance of a of a silent film and they have like the you know the the grand Wurlitzer organ um, mm-hmm. and it's all kind of lit up and that you can mm-hmm. see the guy there playing away and the the films there playing away and I always sort of thought that the kind of the the point of the the accompaniment was to disappear that you you weren't it was supposed to be seamless part it was a part of the film you weren't you know, you had to forget the organist was there but when yeah. you got this Wurlitzer guy all neoned up and <laughs> shining bright in the corner you can't forget that he's there playing the thing so I, I I'm, I'm just a bit unsure how or what the thinking is behind that whether that's kind of the point that the Wurlitzer is that important a part that you need to know that it's there and 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 see it whilst you're watching the film or I, I don't know I, I I don't get that part yeah I couldn't tell you you know I've seen uh, Toronto Sound Film Festival and um I can't remember the gentleman's name who does play the mighty Wurlitzer um and he does it's a very tricky performance because he's pulling at all the valves and, <laughs> yeah and all these things and he's got the yeah. feet going um I personally can focus on the movie, yeah, right, yeah. And, and and not so much be aware of it. I don't know if that was the case, uh, like let's say back in nineteen twenty eight, mm. if if the organist was all lit up, like you said, Ben might know better, uh, yeah, yeah. Or if it was just more in the background, or even an orchestra. If there's an orchestra, you know, was that something that you saw and it became part of it? But after a while, like for me, my brain shifts over to just. The movie. Yeah, watch the film. I'm sure. Yeah, you're probably yeah. right. Yeah, you're probably right. It's uh, yeah, it's just an interesting little little point because I guess the orchestra, where they they are in the pit, so you're mm-hmm. supposed to look over the top of them to and see yeah. the screen. I suppose you know you wouldn't have them all kind of lit up and spotlighted, but <clears throat> maybe the 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 organ is part of the attraction as well. I guess that's probably part and parcel. I mean, I don't know. I'm totally ignorant to it to be honest. So yeah, I think just, I think it might be now. You know, yeah. it's like when they do uh, right now, symphonies will accompany silent films, right? Like I've seen Chaplin. I've seen Casablanca and Jaws where they strip the soundtrack off. I've seen Bugs Bunny where they do that. They, they strip the soundtrack off and they have the orchestra playing. And the orchestra is very present, right? But I'll always just end up looking at the, the film itself. Yeah, yeah it's funny, funny if I've seen that there's a few. I know... Um... They're showing Superman, you know, the 1977 mm-hmm. Christopher Reeve with an orchestral score and the London Symphony Orchestra are playing that. And I thought to myself, you'd probably find it really great and you'd be, you'd be sort of very present with the orchestra. But then as you start to watch the film, that would just become a soundtrack. And yeah. you'd probably forget it's there, you know. So I guess it's probably the same. Yeah, probably the same. Well, well it's funny because my wife is like that. It's like we went and saw, like I said, Casablanca and Jaws. She went, yeah, I'm not going to do that again because it just is a nice version of the... Yeah. actual soundtrack right yeah, because yeah. it's so precise it has to be yeah, yeah it does right? yeah exactly yeah, yeah of course it does whereas yeah, with silent good. film you know it can be now that's, that's to me one of the the beauties of silent film is you can change the score and it becomes a completely different film yes right? yeah, yeah um i don't know if we talked about this before um because when we talked last time we fought down was one of the first uh silence with a score yeah um so Laurel and Hardy music to me, you know, if you see like on a DVD, it's kind of like how they, um, on the UK set, they took all the Bohunks music and they scored all the sounds with the Bohunks music. Yeah. So Laurel and Hardy music, when somebody's playing it, tends to be, um, you know, that kind of mood. 
It's yeah. like, and several years ago, a, a DVD was put out um, and they had the Alloy Orchestra. I don't know if you know them, do no. big business. Um, check it out because Alloy Orchestra is like guys hitting metal tubes. It's very percussive. Oh, okay. And that sort of thing, right? And it's the last thing you would think with Laurel and Hardy, but it changes the mood of it so much. Like you can love it or hate it, but it's almost like it reminded me of the Danny Elfman score from uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. So all of a sudden, you know, it has this energy that's amped up that you don't associate with Laurel and Hardy, but it really works. And that's, again, that's the thing that I love about, about silent film is that, you know, if you compare it, you know, to the, to the talkies, that the music can change everything. Even on, you know, I see on your back shelf, the, the year one uh, disc, and some of them have uh, the French score from the 30s, right? And you can watch Sailors Beware this way, or you can watch it this way, and it becomes two different films. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? That? I mean, we sp- yeah. I know we, we've spoken before about the uh, the Yondon tooting, tooting, sorry, <laughs> and uh, tooting, you know, tooting, Yondon tooting. Now you've so. got me saying tooting. <laughs> but that, yeah, that that the, having those different soundtracks, it makes the film or it breaks the film. You you miss the mm-hmm. gags if you don't have it scored correctly, and it yeah, is exactly. a huge part of it. So this is the Alloy Orchestra, did you say? The Alloy Orchestra, big business. I'm going to have to check that out. That sounds that sounds fascinating. Very lovely. So this, with this particular silent film in hand, Angora Love, it's the last silent film in the boy's career, as we've said, and I think it gets a little bit of a bum rap. I think it gets overlooked quite a lot. And okay, it's not it's not one of their best. It's not one of their worst. You know, it's a nice little middle ground comedy. But I think you know it, it should get some respect because it. It's obviously the the source from which at least three of the boys' more famous films, more popular mm-hmm. films, were inspired. So, you know, we've got. Uh, I mean, the obvious example is Laughing Gravy, with pretty much everything from Angora Love included. Just swap it, the animal for a dog. Which do you uh, do you have a preference, Chris? Angora Love or Laughing Gravy? What would you have? Oh well, Laughing Gravy is one of my absolute favourites. Oh, is it so, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. and, and we, we can maybe touch on that later. Um, but you know, Laughing Gravy has, you know, you can love Angora Love, but Laughing Gravy is just next level. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just an ethereal film. You know, it, and you know, we can talk about that now, or we can talk about it later. Maybe we should talk about Angora Love first before we talk about why Laughing Gravy is is, is superior in my view. But um, well, as, yeah, as we'll, I've we'll, just we'll said, we need that. to give Angora Love a little bit more respect. I think we should cover yes. Angora Love first because <laughs> that's yeah. Yeah, exactly. Let's disrespect Angora Love right away by talking about Laughing Gravy. <laughs> Uh, but uh, no, so I mean, you know, the, the things with Angora Love. So we've got, yeah. So there's the Laughing Gravy obvious comparison, um, but also we've got uh, rather big chunks gags that were taken from B. Oh, were used in Be Big, where they're hanging the clothes on the back of the door, and Bo Hunks with the the foot massage scene, uh, yeah, yeah. which is which is a great scene, and yeah. again, very very visual. I mean, this is the same with all of uh, the boys' comedy, isn't it? It's it's so visual. Uh, and and it just works across both both mediums, and also the chimp. I mean, Stan said they remade Angora Love as the chimp. I mean, I think he was getting slightly mixed up. It's there are mm-hmm. some similarities, but it's it's laughing gravy if anything. No, I think it it it, it should be sort of recognised that it yeah it wasn't one of the best films, but it was inspiration for a lot of the good stuff that was to come. 
I was going to say it's also inspiration when I was watching it again for uh, their first mistake. You know, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, it's a boarding house. You know, they don't have a goat. They have a baby. Um, <laughs> they're just trying to, you know, they're just trying to keep things quiet. Yeah, that's a you good know, point, if you actually. Must, if you <laughs> must make a noise, make it quietly, right? And it's yes. like that's that's kind of a an ongoing theme with them. And so it's just like it's an entire film that's just devoted to we have this thing that really shouldn't be here mm-hmm. that is disruptive yes. and noisy yeah. and yeah. we've got to keep it quiet, right? And we're incapable of doing that. Right? So that kind of struck me when I was watching it. Yeah, I never thought of that. Says, that's a really good point. And it's, it's incredible how much mileage they can get in one room. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just crazy. I mean, I know in some of the Laughing Gravy, they're up on the roof as well and, you know, different things. But so if you think about how many films they're in that position, you know, yeah. they go boom as well. You know, and it's just, they could just well, do it. They can just keep finding those gags in, from those simple situations. Is this the first film... I mean, it has that little intro where they get the goat, the little three, first three minutes, whatever. But is this the first film where they're actually in a single room for most of the film? Because uh, I know point. Leave Them Laughing, it's like they're in it real one. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Outside real two. But, and then they do They Go Boom, where it all takes place in the boarding house. But I think that this is like the first one where it was just like, we're in this contained space for 17 out of 20 minutes. And then what do you do in that space? Where do you find the gags? And that's, that becomes interesting. Like, cause I, I can really picture, you know, Stan and babe and the gag men sitting around going, okay, what's next? You know, oh, well, you know, there's a thumbtack on the floor. So he's got to step on that sort of thing. Um, you know, what are things like, this feels like something that wasn't scripted. It's like, okay, we have a goat. What happens when we have a goat? We have to give him a bath, right? Or, you know, he stomps and makes noise, right? And so, okay, well, now we have to do a, a, a bath scene. And you can't script that. That's choreography, right? And that, that's one of the things that those <laughs> stepping on the, the tack. Yeah. And then the, then he pulls it out of his, and then just throws it away back onto the floor. Yeah, that's, exactly. You know, it's it's a great gag, but it's it's one of those things that really infuriates me. <laughs> Don't well, because you have to have it later, right? Because they have the big yeah. close up. The next time, it's like there's the big close up just before I'm the close up of the right? tack. That's right. The, the anticipation. Right? <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Uh, and then we've got uh, yeah, of course. So we and we have Edgar Kennedy back again, and this is the middle film of his, of, one, of his three sort of back to back films. So we, he was in Baking Grabbers, he had mm-hmm. a huge part in Baking Grabbers, which and he was fabulous in that. Uh, yeah. Angora Love, and then he's he returns for the first talk, of course, unaccustomed as we are. But again, a great performance. I think Edgar Kennedy, because he, if I'm right, he came in to sort of replace the James Finlayson character because Finlayson went off and tried to make his way in, you know, in in other studios, and he filled that gap, that void, brilliantly well. Um, he brings something very, very different to Finlayson. But that sort of very grumpy landlord character or cop, or he just, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a reliable foil, isn't he? Well, he's, he does something, you know, it's weird when you think of like, I don't think Finlayson ever played a landlord, right? No, if you, no. If, if you compare him to like Charlie Hall in Laughing Gravy, right? And Charlie Hall is, you know, this little guy, right? And Kennedy, you know, Kennedy built his whole career on, you know, the... You know, the seething, the slow burn, right? Like, he, you know, 20 years he, he played that character, right? And, um, you know, he, 
it is just because he's a big guy. He's like Kennedy himself was a boxer. He was a fighter, right? So he's like a guy who could like punch both these guys and you know knock them on. <laughs> so could Charlie <laughs> Hall, right? Yeah. I think, right? But he, instead, he just sees, and I think that's part of the Roach. You know, it's the Roach style, right? Where you're not going to react. And I, and then I wonder if that Roach style also informed him over his years that he was there that he was able to go to RKO and do his 15-year series there playing the average man, right, with that, and bring that, you know, Hal Roach philosophy to to those things. But Kennedy's great. He's great in everything. He's really great in um, the Our Gang shorts he did, where he's Kennedy the cop, because um, I think he was brought in because it's talkies and, you know, how do you get these kids with dialogue? So, you know, let's bring in... I think he was the first kind of regular adult character in there. And then they brought in Miss Crabtree later on. But, you know, but he's like just a sweet guy too, right? Like he lo- he likes the kids. He, you know, plays around with the kids and things like that. He's just, he's, he's a really delightful performer in, in anything you see him in, you know? Yeah, I think I mean I'm not I'm not familiar at all with the Our Gang. I've seen I've seen a, a very small handful of Our Gang comedies because they just they weren't around when I was getting into these films. You know, it was Laurel and Hardy, Harold Lloyd, um, Chaplin, sometimes hardly mm-hmm. any Keaton. But I, yeah, no, I just totally missed Our Gang. So so his his character in those films is he the Kennedy the cop character? Is that similar to the one from Night Owls? where he's a bit yeah. of a goofball cop, yeah. cop. It's the same kind of, right. Yeah, okay. you could imagine like the Aragain kids playing down the street, except it's after midnight, right? But, you know, they were they were rascals. They were always getting out, right? But, but that's exactly the same character, you know, where he's, you know, he's kind of beastly flummoxed and things like that. Um, you really should, you know, do yourself a favor. You know, we're talking about the silence, like a lot of people not paying attention to them. The wonderful thing about the Hal Roach stuff is that it, it's so of a, a single thing. Now, when I was growing up, you could see Lowell and Hardy and Little Rascal at the same time. And you'd go, oh, that's the same music in them, right? So you knew it was kind of a, of the same world. But um, the Hal Roach early talkies are so superior to everything else. In fact, like the Hal Roach two-reelers like from you know, 1927 on were superior to everyone else's, right? But, you know, you can watch the our gangs and the charlie chases and they're just head and shoulders above everyone else um i would say do yourself a favor and classic flicks over here just put out the entire run of our gang uh how roach talkies um on blu-ray and uh boy they're fun yeah yeah, I must. I must get that. I'll have to see if I can get those. I was thinking about it a while ago, and I just thought, when am I going to get time to watch them for starters? <laughs> but uh, no, I, I must do that. I must do that. Oh, yeah. Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. But have I been a good boy, Chris? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't see. know either. Don't, you've, been good, you've been good to me. So. <laughs> well, it's early yet. <laughs> well, it's good. No, I mean it's, it's interesting because I was I, I have wondered that with with, with Kennedy the cop um, because obviously he's he's a cop in Leave Him Laughing, but he's not no. Kennedy. He's not that goofball no, sort of no. cop. So that's that's interesting. And we also, as you just mentioned, Charlie Hall um, pokes his, his head into the film. Um, doesn't have a huge amount to do apart from throw throw stuff and no. receive stuff. <laughs> but it's always good to see Charlie Hall. 
and uh, Harry Bernard is the other guy. He's the cop who comes yeah, in to try and, yeah. to try and sort things out. Yeah, so a nice little um, nice little group of supporting players, and Penelope the Goat, of course. We can't forget the, the title the title actress, um, whose name mm-hmm. is used again. They use Penelope, don't they, in as a Raven in one of the Fox films, The Great Guns, I think it is. They they do. You're right, but it's funny because in Saps at Sea, the goat is called Narcissus. Oh yes, rather funny. There's the goat, some trivia it? for you. Right <laughs> Top of the head, I love that. Look at that. Maybe, maybe Narcissus was one of the three. Okay, spoiler alert. Maybe Narcissus was one of the three little goatlings that come out at the end of the film. Oh, that's a good little twist. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. eleven years later, ten years later, I don't know how long the goats live. She's uh, <laughs> she butts Ollie into the water. <laughs> That's right. Oh, fantastic. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to to mention also the the music tracks. I mean, I'm not an expert on the music tracks by any any stretch, but this, of course, is it's the last silent film. It's also the last film that has the synchronized music and sound effects track. The I've, I'm just I mean, I'm referring to Randy's wonderful book, of course, The Magic Behind the Movies. And again, uh, it's it's a Victor recording from Camden Trinity Baptist Church. We've come used to Randy telling us, and Norbert Ludwig again on the pipe organ. But the music cues, I mean, we start with hey-ho, everybody, hey-ho. And then throughout the the uh, the picture, we get uh, something called manuscript, which is uh, Norbert Ludwig himself uh, is is composing. Which I think it must be a bit of a filler. <laughs> Um, and then we get tracks like uh, There Was Nothing Else To Do, which is actually the moment when the boys bring the goat back to the boarding house. is trying to hang his clothes on the door which is the manuscript by Norbert Ludwig and then as the boys start to tangle with Penelope the goat uh, and they're taking bits of fabric off her uh, we have a track called What a Day by Harry Woods Thank you. 
we sit down and, and Babe starts to massage Stan's foot, uh, we quickly move to a track called We Love It. <laughs> And then we return to What A Day again. Um, and then we also get something called the Monte Carlo song, which appears a number of times throughout. Again, it must have been a little bit of a filler. Nothing in this, uh, in these music cues, as there are in in previous films, that really stand out is just by the title. Certainly, that's like we've had. What did we have? Um, where did you get that hat? Sitting on top of the world, you know exactly what's happening. Horses, horses, horses. <laughs> horses, horses. That's right. Yeah. I got a cold in my nose uh, by Arthur Fields and Fred Hall and Billy Rose. Mm-hmm. And that always reminds me of. Um, uh, pack up your troubles. I got a cold to be doze. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Baby, oh, where can you be? still caring got the blues when it rains. 
Pain in My Heart by Pete Wendling. I, I do. I get a lot of enjoyment now out of these um, uh, the synchronized scores, and it, I, I just think it's really important to sort of shine a torch, uh, a sh- shine a spotlight, I should say, on uh, on these tracks because they just go unnoticed otherwise, as as you know, filling filling dead space, I suppose, filling the yeah. music. Exactly. Well, it's, it's funny when I was when I was watching it. Um, you know, unlike the orchestral scores there was nothing that leapt out at me and then, oh, okay, it's that song, right? Yeah. I, like, I'm not Randy in yes. terms of yeah. my, my really huge in-depth knowledge of, of music from that era. You know, I, I know a few things, right? But there's nothing even among these titles that make me go, oh, yeah, you're a pain in my heart. You know, uh, you know, I don't, I don't quite get it. So there was nothing that that kind of did a thing for me where it elevated the humor. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. like it would, it would do like, um, yeah. You know, like you've talked about before, where if the song underscores the situation. Yeah. Right. I wasn't quite getting that vibe with this. Yes. It's really hard to sort of get a hand on it because obviously this is such a different generation now, and and those, um, you know, those tunes. I mean, Randy. Randy always says that those, those tunes would have been known by those audiences. They were popular tunes, and they would yeah. have fed into that. Um, and it's just hard. It's hard to get that handle on it from 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 our perspective. I think um, it would be lovely to be able to be back then and, and I don't know, have that knowledge and see them in situ and just have that experience because it's something I, I will never, you know, unless unless I suddenly have a a degree in in old time music <laughs> and just you know 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 them from just from a few bars because sometimes they Hang are out just with randy for a week oh yes yeah 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 well uh, i'm already starting to build up a, a jazz collection of, of vinyl now uh I keep, pick, <laughs> I, I keep picking them up i've got all kinds of strange how big is your garage <laughs> i'm having it built at the moment it's uh, <laughs> it's not big enough um but um so, so just in terms of the actual film itself, what what are your what are your thoughts on Angora Love, uh, Chris? Where does where does it sit with you? I, you know, it's it's middle tier. Yeah, right? I would I would go. It's not one that I go. Oh boy, I really want to watch Angora Love. Yeah, right now, right? Um, there's there's a lot of good stuff in it. It's it's interesting this idea that uh, some of the material ended up in other films. Mm. Um, you know. And I find it's always done better in the other films. Yeah, yeah, usually. You know, for example, if you were to take uh, the foot rubbing scene where like, oh boy, are my feet tired, and to sync up the Bo Hunks version with Angora Love, mm. it'd probably be very, very much the same. Yeah. But it doesn't have 
you know, Ollie going, ah, you know, yeah. doesn't have the, you know, the, the wonderful voice. And that's, you know, that's kind of a key to how much sound elevated them. I'm so tired, my feet are killing me. Oh, oh. Scratch my back. Scratch your own back. I've got troubles of my own. Oh. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah, he's in yeah. just, yeah, how he um, sort of blows through his toes and you hear the... Yeah, pfft. yeah. Even just something very simple like that, a sound does make a big difference, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, uh, his facial reactions are always fantastic. Yes. You can't talk. Yeah babe hardy for facial reactions yeah, yeah but oh boy he brings that in and it's just like yeah it's like an orchestra it goes from organ music to orchestra yes yeah 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 that's a, that's right uh yeah and also with the 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 be big gag with the with the hanging the clothes there is much more made of that in be big that goes on for a lot longer but i guess you would yeah. expect that you know it's 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 been inspired by a small gag and then you can develop it later um yeah they did that all the time yeah like anything they did the first time they did better the second time. Yeah, yeah. Except arguably like the auction scene from Thicker Than Water in Dancing Masters just because. Ah, well, yes. You know, yeah, yeah. anything yeah. anything they did within their Roach films yes. the first time, did you get a, send, a second time in a Roach film, it's always yeah. better. Yes, right? yeah, yeah. I don't think, yeah. There's, I mean, there's a few, there are a few things they do in the Fox films that they've, they're, they're they're more regurgitated rather than recycled or reused. I think it's just kind of yeah. Yeah, spat onto the film to try and give it a little bit of a lift. But uh, that's a yeah. good way of putting it. Yeah, but I think you know overall the film like it's it's a fun film to watch. It's it's um, you know it's all sideways. Mm. You know, it's like where did they kind of sit down and go? Let's have a goat being a problem <laughs> in a living in a in our boarding yeah. house, right? <laughs> Who's um, one of the goats? Yeah. I think, you know, they're doing things that nobody else was doing at the time where they could do just this contained comedy because it's yeah. just the two of them. Yeah. Right? And there's like, just little nice things. You know, there's a, there's a joke that's like kind of you – you talked about Hardy throwing down the pin yeah, yeah. earlier that he stepped on, right? Well, there's a joke there, right? Because when he throws down the pin, it wakes up Kennedy. <laughs> right? so, so literally, he heard a pin drop. Right? <laughs> Very good. I missed so, that one. So you have all this stomping around. That's good. Right? That's good. And then the minute that you know, Hardy throws the pin, <laughs> cut to Kennedy going. Huh? <laughs> you know? I missed so, that totally. Yeah, that's really good. That's good. So there's there's some brilliant stuff. There's a thing I really like where uh, the goat pulls off the wallpaper and stands just trying to put the wallpaper back on. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And he, yeah. And he licks the wallpaper. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to go back on as well, amazingly. Yeah, it it, it, it worked right. <laughs> but there's, there's, you know, just lots, like, lots of good stuff. And you see they're feeling their way around with it, trying to find gags. I think the one thing that doesn't work for me, I made a note of this, is when Stan exercises. Yeah. You know? Because yeah. it's like, you know, Stan's not a smart character, but it's below his intelligence. The whole yeah. thing is, hey, we have to be quiet. And then he wakes up and he goes, oh, well, now I have to jump around with my... <laughs> my stretching you know <laughs> yes. equipment right so yeah. so it you know it gives babe the chance to go you know if you must exercise exercise quietly that's yeah. the theme yes and do yeah. his little very dainty part oh, of i love that that is so nicely done isn't it how he, yeah. he he pulls it back 
and then yeah. he just his little tiptoes forward again. Yeah. It's so so graceful. Yeah. So And then so he's face good. to face with Kennedy. <laughs> That's right. Right. <laughs> yeah, that is good. That's a bit of a stand up bit for me, that little bit with his uh, yeah, with his tiptoes. And again, you know, we talk we talk a lot about how graceful Hardy was for a big man, and that just really shows mm-hmm. it beautifully, beautifully. Yeah. But yeah, I think once great. you get into like the water throwing at the end, it's a bit like the end of Double Whoopee, where it's like, well, we're not quite sure what to do with this now, so let's go to the tried and true. The tried and true always seems to be a smaller version of your darn tootin', right? A little, a little reciprocal dis- uh, destruction, but uh, you know, after a while, it can't go anywhere. Right. It's just like, OK, everyone's wet now. You know, we're done. What do we do? Right. Um, so, you know, that's that's a little bit of a letdown. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a, it's a film that. You know, and I don't know if it's because, you know, they were just trying to turn them out because they did so many films that year. Right? They did like like a, over a dozen films, I think, in twenty nine. Right? Yeah. Or released yeah. in twenty nine. So they were turning them out and I don't know if it's just exhaustion or, Hey, we're going to be closing the studio down soon. So what can you do? That's it's like saps at sea, right? What can you do? That's fast and, and cheap. Okay. Well, we can do this. You know, we're in a boarding house. There's three characters. Um, you know, there's, there's not much to it. So, you know, that may have played into a little bit. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely inspired, but then you can see, you know, um, when they do it as, as, uh, um, laughing gravy that they seem to have a much more inspired take on it and that might just be the growth of them as characters and performers um but it's and they give themselves more breathing room um you know everything everything just works better it, it, it everything in laughing gravy makes sense you know um there's things in angora love that doesn't don't make sense to me like for example um i guess you can go off the top Oh, we're going to get arrested for goat for kidnapping, right? As a logical reaction to yeah. feeding a goat on the street, you know, right, yeah. um, it's just like, no, we didn't like. Let's get him back to the owner, right? yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Right. It just like didn't occur to them, right. um, you know. The, the Harry Bernard at the end just automatically assuming that Kennedy is the one who stole the goat, yeah, yeah. Uh, and hauling off. So, 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 so things are like mm, not quite working for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's not one that I would like you know ever refuse to watch or just kind of oh that was an yeah. awful film it's just like oh a lot of promise and then that promise is fulfilled later on in, in laughing gravy yeah well this is true i think you know it's it's probably quite easy to think that this is the last of the silent films so they just needed to get it out of the way with as cheaply as possible because they're probably spending a lot of money on the installation of the sound equipment so mm-hmm. it's probably quite easy to, to to jump to that conclusion and i think uh, there, there probably is some truth in that, and uh, uh, Randy's spoken before about um, "They Go Boom," you know, which is is very similar because it's just set in that one room. It's a you know the boarding house, very cheap to make, and it's probably because they're saving money because the next one they want to make is uh, I think it's the is it the Hooskow? I think it's the Hooskow, which is a much more on location, bigger budget. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've got all that car they wreck a car and there's there's all kinds of stuff going on so it's it could be because of that you know the, the money is tight they've got one more film to do it's a very quick um film done in what six days was it or something yeah um and 
you know, it, it's, it is literally a product of that. You know, it's a quite easy, fast, let's get it done, get it in and out, not costing as much money, and that's the result of it. So fair enough. It's, a, it's good for but what e- it is. But even the, like, the most rushed or least inspired Laurel and Hardy film at that time is superior to anything else that was on the market. Absolutely right. Yeah. In, to, in, yeah. in, in my mind, you know, yeah. um, you know, it's like, I was talking about how the Roach talkie, all the Roach talkie series are better than pretty much anything out there yeah. in the early thirties. The Laurel and Hardy shorts are, are so above and beyond everything else. And that's not even, that's not even opinion. To me, that's that's fact. Fact, yes, right. <laughs> it's the yeah. fact is that the Laurel and Hardy films, and I haven't seen many of the Roach All Stars from that period, right? Except for the Anita Garvin, Marion Byron ones, which yeah. are fantastic, yeah. right? And the Max Davidson. So if you take the Max Davidsons, the Laurel and Hardys, the Charlie Chase and the Hour Gangs hmm. from that late MGM period, there's simply n- nothing that can compare. In terms of quality, yeah. to those things, yeah, you know, no, and they carried it all. All those series, except for the All Stars, and Max Davison, because he was already demoted before talkies, prospered into sound as well. Right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Charlie Charlie Chase did. He could sing. He could do anything. He could deliver comic dialogue, and it's because it was also personality driven. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So, which which brings us quite neatly on, Chris, to to looking at other artists, other acts, other you know silent comedians that were facing the, the exact same issues of of approaching the talkies. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we we know for a fact that Laurel and Hardy they they didn't just transfer well; they excelled in the talkies. They they grew, they got stronger, they got you know they they attracted more and more audiences to them. Uh, because sound added so much to their comedy, which you know we've we've, we've spoken about and we will speak a lot about in the in the coming um, episodes. But how was it for other comedians of that time? You know, I'm thinking particularly Buster Keaton, Lloyd. I mean, Chaplin obviously he <laughs> he went kicking and screaming into the talkies, and it took him yeah, what, exactly. uh, another what ten years or something before yeah. he released and, his, his and, first. And one. kudos to him for doing that too. Yeah, yeah. Because City Lights in modern times are genius films because he saw it as the art form but um you know it's, it's such an interesting period because when you're talking about let's say the big four at the time which would be chaplin keaton lloyd and harry langdon they weren't really laurel and hardy's contemporaries they were very well established langdon less so chaplin had been around since 1914 so he's already 15 years into being charlie chaplin right laurel and hardy were a year Keaton had been around since 17, 1917, Lloyd the same way. So they had like massive followings, but they're all in really interesting positions at that point because, again, Chaplin's refusal to, to go into talkies and also his personal life was really affecting him at that point too. Like the mm. circus was apparently, yeah. a lot of people love the circus. I love the circus too, but I wouldn't classify it as like, up there with the gold rush and, yeah. and city lights but he was going through a lot of personal problems with divorce and all manner of uh, personal struggles yeah keaton again the same thing he had just been sold to mgm yeah uh so just as talkies are coming his creative you know his creative direction is taken away from all his creativity yeah. so he managed to get out the cameraman right yeah. after doing steamboat bill jr yeah. Uh, which is fantastic, but it was yes. weird because it was happening. He was 
he was getting kind of yanked back a bit anyway, because after he did the general, and apparently the general didn't live up to mm. expectations profit-wise, they yanked him back a little bit, and he turned out College, which is a great film, uh, but a much lesser film, right? Yeah. Where you know he's doing you know a Harold Lloyd kind of thing, yeah. And already he's kind of getting things pulled away from him. So he does the cameraman. He does a stellar job with that. But then his next film after that, Spike Marriage, is, yeah, okay, Spike Marriage is great, but it's not quite there. He's starting to play a bit of a dope. And then, so after uh, Spike Marriage, then, okay, Keaton, you're into the talkies. And he's put into Free and Easy, which is just just a disastrous film. Right. I've not seen Free and Easy. Yeah. Oh, well, you know. Don't. <laughs> um, although I can, I, I can talk that. Right? But but they turn him into like a dope. Oh, he gets yeah. dopey dialogue. They turn him into a sad clown at the end, and it's just he's just stripped away. And it it is interesting because one of the things that made Laurel and Hardy work yeah. going into the the talkies is they knew how to use sound in terms of dialogue. Yeah. Right. Not only in terms of like sound effects, like the gong on the head imperfect day or a stand falling down the stairs at the end of unaccustomed we are but the dialogue was not jokey yes um, yeah there's a bit of that in you know the first scene of unaccustomed as we are where it's like oh hello mrs kennedy oh hello mr hardy that was mrs kennedy but you know you don't get a, a lot of jokey humor it was all very natural and that's why in the talkies they could do a film like birthmarks right and you know, which again, I would love to see that played as a silent with a score on it somewhat, right? Or I'm kind of surprised they didn't, when they reissued that in 37, they didn't put a full score on it the same way they did with County Hospital or Perfect Day. I think we'd see it differently, right? But so, you know, Keaton wanted to do that, but he was robbed of it, right? Because his whole idea, he apparently he wanted to do a Western with Marie Dressler, right? And where, you know, they're traveling, you know, east to west and, you know, Keaton is taking whatever his aunt. And it could have been fantastic if it was allowed to do Keaton's way. But it's like, no, instead, Buster, what you should do is you should dress up like a clown and dance on strings like a marionette. And won't that be fun? See, now I got you wanting to watch this film. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The the Western one. You got me on that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. well, that's just in your imagination. Uh, Yeah, that would have been good. I can see that one. And then then you've got Harold Lloyd where like he was actually really at the top of his game at this point where he's doing uh, I think the kid brother and then Speedy. I can't remember the exact chronology of his film but they're they're wonderful wonderful films and he because Harold Lloyd, you know, ate life with a big spoon. It's like I'll take this on the talkies. He had Welcome Danger as far as I know, pretty much, if not entirely shot, and then he went back and reshot it as a talkie. And it's actually worse than Free and Easy. <laughs> it's, 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 just, it's just a terrible film because for some reason he's playing this very prissy, annoying character, uh, very far away from what he usually plays. I don't know why he made that decision, um, but you know, not a great choice. Bad dialogue. There's a, there's, I'll, you know, I'll quote it. There's a scene where he pulls into a train station, and the name of the town is Newberry, and he says to someone for no particular reason, 
well, I've heard of a raspberry and a strawberry, but this is a new berry to me. <laughs> and, and, that's you good know, stuff. Yeah, you know, I think that's the I think that's the biggest laugh that line ever got right now from you. Um, so also he's he's getting older. He's like forty at this point, right? Yeah. And he's, you know, you can't play the twenty five year old at a certain no, the fresh faced kid. Yeah, yeah, and it starts to fail, and he really starts to flounder. So after that, uh, which was a huge huge success, apparently, uh, Welcome Danger because of novelty of seeing Harold Lloyd and Bucky, because enormously popular at the time you know feet first is kind of a fail because he tries to go back to you know climbing up the side of a building it's a safety last but then it points out the difference between talkies and uh silence which is he's on climbing up the building and he's screaming for help and, and grunting and panting right and it takes you know it brings too much reality which is odd because you know i went to a screen of safety last recently and people were like hearts in their throats. Right? Yeah. It's funny. I mean, that, that I read um, one of the contemporary reviews of safety last and I mean, I don't know whether it was just a bit of spin, but they were saying, you know, ambulances had to attend the theaters yeah. because people were fainting and passing out because it was so, yeah, the thrill of it was so, so much, but yeah. yeah and it, and it still works, but then, so it's very real when you're watching it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a silent, but then when you're watching feet first and it's just like, help, help. It's like, this isn't <laughs> funny anymore. It's just <laughs> a horrible situation happening to this man. Right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And yeah. And then, you know, he just gets older and he, he, he gets stiffer. Like, you know, I think he does some really great stuff. Like um, he does kind of his, he does his last young man thing in uh, movie crazy. Again, he's still he's too old. He's a forty year old man playing a twenty two year old who wants to make it big in Hollywood. So doesn't quite work. Gets into some interesting stuff. The cat's paw is interesting, um, but he's feeling his way around a lot. You know, he gets uh, the Milky Way is very good. Leo McCary directed that, but it's just not the same guy anymore. Right. Um, he has to feel his way around. So Lloyd really struggled, I think. And you can see it, you know, he does a thing where instead of two films a year, he's doing a film every two years now until he just sort of petered out. You know, like I can't imagine anyone in 1938 being excited by Professor Beware. <laughs> that kind of thing. Although I'm a big, although I'm a big fan of, uh, the Sin of Harold Diddlebach. Oh, I see. I haven't. I, I steered away from a lot of um, Harold's latest, well, his talkies, especially because I, I saw some of the early ones. I thought, nah, I don't yeah. like this. He, his characters were annoying, um, which is not, you know, you you with with the with the silent films, you kind of you. I suppose you're related to him a lot more, and he was a nice guy. He was, you know. But the, yeah, the, he, he was just annoying in the talkies. I, I found, which was a shame. So I left. I just stopped watching them in the end. I've got them all. You know, they're on the shelf there. But I just I couldn't bring myself to watch them because I didn't want to not like him. I didn't want to be annoyed by the character. Um, but it's interesting, you know. I'm just, just thinking about it. Where, and this is this is maybe where 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 it went kind of wrong. Obviously, you've got Keaton and Lloyd, um, and also Chaplin, I suppose. But they they've they've been in pictures for a long time. You know, by the time mm -hmm. Stan and Babe come into the picture, so they're well-established characters, and 
as they come to the talkies, by the looks of it, they both change. The characters change because yeah, a, fundamentally, a they're older, so they have to, they have to change fundamentally. Yeah. Um, but and you know, in Keaton's case, he's gone to MGM, so they change his character, they change his comedy, which is just mm-hmm. not going to work. So, um, whereas Stan and Babe are quite quite new their comedy is quite new they're just they're still developing they're still growing so they can carry on that growth into the talkies and sort of take that big change and, and work with it um mm. and chaplin refuses to change and doesn't change and carries on so his you know he he's still successful because he's still doing what he did previously only on yeah. a kind of a grander scale so that kind of makes sense a little bit um you know, you got to feel for, for for Buster and for Harold because obviously, it kind of, it was taken away from them in, a little bit. It was, yeah, know, absolutely, victims of, of of the changes that were sort of forced upon them, really. Well, what's interesting is, you know, I keep going back to the entire Roach stable. You know, what worked for all of them, including Charlie Chase, is it felt like even when they were shooting a silent, they were speaking the dialogue in a natural manner. So it's almost like if you just put a mic in the room, you know, if they had a mic in the room while they were shooting Angora Love, right, it probably would have made, made a nice talkie, right? Like um, there's the Chuck McCann dubbed version of Double Whoopi, right? Where it was an experiment in making a talkie and it, and it pretty much works. And, but it, it shows that they put so much thought into their character that they just imbued it them to a point when they were performing that of course they would talk like those characters when they were shooting a silent film. Like I can easily imagine them sounding like the Stan and Ollie that we know, right? Whereas, you know, and their voices, like, again, their voices were perfect. For them, yeah, right? they, that's the big thing, isn't it? Yeah. But I think that's a problem with Lloyd especially is, well, Keaton's voice isn't great. It's kind of like it was an anchor around his neck a bit because it was kind of gruff. But I think the, the problem with Lloyd is he couldn't figure out how to, A, translate his character into an older character, right? And there's a difference between being charming and being annoying, right? And I think that's like, you know, you might think that a flippant little comment like, you know, that's a new berry to me is supposed to be charming, but it's just like, it's just annoying, right? Like, um, you know, because he, if you look at, at Lloyd, you know, he'd pull off gags where, you know, he could walk in and be very officious, but it was for a reason because he was trying to get something. But when he does it in a talkie, then he just seems like an officious jerk and doesn't get away from it. There's a lot. There's, You know, I, I'll have to go back and re-explore those films, but all I can remember from them is there's a lot to be disappointed in those really early uh, Lloyd talkies. You know, he just didn't adapt well at all. Yeah, but and and I think I've mentioned um, certainly in uh, in my essay, you know, you've got people like Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, you know, the king and queen mm-hmm. of Hollywood, and they just flopped immediately. That they just wouldn't, the audiences would not accept them in talkies. Oh. Um, so it it really didn't matter who you were. There was you know there was no discrimination. You were just if you didn't make oh. the grade, that was it. You were off. That was gone. So. So many Brutal. people, Clara Bow, you know, so many people were just kind of like left behind. Yeah, I think they obviously tried, you know, they, they, they did some talkies, but it just didn't work for them. 
Yeah, well, they did the Taming of the Shrew, which I've never seen, but I can only imagine is very, very stilted because you have two very, especially, you know, Fairbanks is very athletic. And it's like, okay, let's have him recite Shakespeare instead. It's just, it's just ill-advised. You know, he, he did a film called uh, Mr. Robinson Crusoe, which is, um, it's a bit like Adolf actually. You know, he's, he's on an island uh, on a, for a bet that he can survive there. But it looks like it was shot as a home movie. You know, so you can kind of, it's kind of, I think he just lost interest. You know, at the same, at the same time, you know, at the same time people lost interest in him, he was losing interest because, A, he was older, like he starts getting a little bit of a pot belly by this point, right? And balding. Um, you know, he's not the same athlete he was before. And, um, you know, just the joy, I think, was taken away. Well, I think that's probably a good point. I mean, if you think about how um, the technical difficulties that were, they were being faced with, mm-hmm. compared, compared to how free and easy, free and easy it was to make silent films for them, you know, they yeah. could have all kinds of noise going on in the background. Didn't didn't matter a jot. The the technical difficulties, especially if you were kind of an aging star, you you might think, God, do I want to be bothered with this now? You know, yeah. what, should, should I just wrap this up and just think I've had my fun? That's it. Now let's leave this to the the next generation. Mm-hmm. You could you could understand that. Yeah. I think also, you know, another thing that um, is probably worthy of thought is the fact that. Keaton and, and Lloyd, and although they've got co-stars, they were solo comedians. So, whereas Stan and Babe were always together, they'd always each other to talk to. So it was not yeah. their their talking was. It could just be asides. It could just be the the day to day. Whereas yeah. Keaton and Lloyd needed to have reasons to talk. Um, yeah. You know, so that's that's an extra pressure. What what are we going to say? What kind of thing will we say? Who we're we going to say it to? Um, and also with Keaton, you know, he, he, he just matches silence so well because he is that deadpan. Yeah. Um, so what kind of a voice should he have? What, and I, that's such a difficult thing for him to make that, that change. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't have a bad voice. It just grounds him. You know, it's it just, you know, he, that whatever little superhuman element he had, and he did have that. Oh yeah. Is, yeah. is, is gone. He's just a, you know, a guy with a kind of drawly voice. And you're right. Like Keaton, I think, you know, there's an interview with Keaton, you know, about how he wanted to approach silence where he went, if I'm putting up, if I'm fixing a fence with another guy, we're not going to talk. We're just going to fix the fence. And, the, the, you know, and if we're going to talk, is going to, hey, can you hand me the nails? Right. And that's kind of what, what Stan and Babe did in their own way. You open the cupboard. I'll put those away. You know who's really interesting at the time is is Harry Lane. Because, you know, his little window was fairly short, like 25, 1924, 25, super peak around 26, 27, and then really fast plummet. In, in in 1928 right and um you know if you see there's there's, there's advocates for three's a crowd um i want to try to appreciate that film better i keep wanting to it's the one where it's it's you know he's apparently supposedly according to frank capra you know which is a bit of a suspect source anyway would be shouting i need more pathos kind of thing right 
Uh, he's swinging, you know, it's a swing for the fences film, right? And there's people who, who love it. Like David Callet on his commentary track, he makes a really good case for it, you know, and, but I'm, I'm not quite there. Um, but then he kind of, that doesn't work for him. So he goes and really retreats to a film called The Chaser, which is almost Max Sennett stuff. Right, you know, and so he's really lost at this point. He did another film called Heart Trouble, which is lost. It'd be interesting to see if he did that. But then he goes to Roach to make talkies, right? And boy, those those are interesting films, right? <laughs> um, to anyone who's you know here because they're Laurel and Hardio files and haven't seen the Harry, Harry Langdon talkies, they're an, they're an experience. Um, because his character is so very odd and his approach to dialogue was so very odd that you love it or you hate it. Langdon's a bit of a love or hate guy anyway, right? But he, he becomes this babbling idiot, you know, where it's, it's like, he's always going, well, 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 and, and you know, there's this long, there's, you know, my first exposure to these, there was a, uh, a video cassette that had a couple of Roach uh, talking shorts. And one was Harry Langdon in The Head Guy. And he, he's, he plays a, a guy who works at a train station. And part of the plot is his girl leaves him to join a showbiz troupe and he's heartbroken. And he spends about three minutes crying over the girl and eating an apple. And it's it's either just the weirdest thing you ever saw, or it's true performance art. Right. You know? okay. and, I, and, I, and I'm not quite sure. But you know, it's <laughs> funny. It's funny. But that was for so a lot of people actually gauged their opinion on Langdon's Roach talkies because of that one, because it was the only one that was really available for a long time. But now they're all out uh, through Kit Parker Films and Sprocket Vault. Um, they're very, some of them are really, really good. And a couple of them, the first two, the soundtrack discs are missing. So they have them just as silence on, on, on the disc. And they work really, really well. But I think if you kind of like shift your opinion of what comedy is supposed to be from that period, and somebody who's, who's taking just a wild swing for the fences at how they might approach it it's it's some very very interesting stuff um because <laughs> he's, he's like Wee herman right like he's he's just this otherworldly character who doesn't yeah doesn't yeah. belong with the rest of humanity you know That's interesting stuff. um but I, I i've come to like those films quite a bit and you know some of them are very strong the shrimp is very strong um there's one called The Big Kick, which is almost a silent film. It's him working in a gas station. Right. Uh, and I think it was shot almost like a silent because they're also doing the Spanish versions too. Oh, okay. Because the Spanish version of that one exists, right? So Langdon speaking in Spanish is almost as interesting as hearing Step and Fetch It speak French on that Little Rascals Blu-ray I was telling you about. Because <laughs> there's a there's an hour gang short with Step and Fetch It. Uh, that they also filmed in French. So you have the Our Gang kids and Stephen Fetchett speaking French. And that alone <laughs> is worth the price of admission. Right? Um, 
So but, are, they, are they the usual sort of uh, Roach stock characters in, in those? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Thelma Todd's in a lot of them. Uh, Max Davidson shows up. Uh, it's funny because Laurel and Hardy's tended to have, I think, different stock character uh, performers. Like, you don't see Finlayson in a lot of Charlie Chase shorts or Aragain shorts, right? I think Mae Bush shows up in one Aragain short. Finlayson shows up in one. A great scene with Spanky in uh, one of the... Uh, it's on the phone. The Aragain shorts. Yeah. Oh, yeah, on the telephone. Yes, Who is yeah. this? <laughs> I don't know. I can't see it. Um, <laughs> This is Mr. Brown for the First National Bank. What are you telling me for? You know, it's, it's a great <laughs> dialogue scene. But, um, but you know, Thelma Todd's in, in a lot of them. Harry Bernard, like the usual suspects will show okay. up. Edgar Kennedy's in several of them. Um, Eddie Dunn uh, is, is in a few of them. So, so there's interest. Yeah, it's, you start with from all, yeah, from, even just from that perspective. That's cool. That's good. Yeah. I could like, try. Like, I know you're... you're tight for time because of life and everything else but boy if you just find some time to like go get because again uh sprocket vault um has put out all the the chase talkies all of them uh for roach uh all the our gangs are out through uh classic flicks also the todd kelly's are out through classic flicks Pit parker put out the um the todd pitts and it, they're there, there's nothing that can compare to them from that era in terms of talking stuff. Yeah. I was just going to mention briefly as well, um, I mean, I know obviously it's a different um, kettle of fish, but Larry Seaman, um, mm -hmm. I know, and I know we touched on him last time we spoke about his declining um, uh, career at that point, because uh, Larry Seaman never made any talk, is Eddie? And I would just be so... No interested to know what the hell he would have done how you know what because I, I feel like he you know along so with a massive star um and you've got keaton who was very deadpan and very kind of silent and what what was his voice going to be like well what the hell was larry seaman going to do because he was very you know animated bouncing all over the place just can't yeah. imagine what they would have done or how he would have tried to tie his voice with with his appearance and you know his his mannerisms yeah it's funny because there's no record that i know of of his voice right um, yeah because yeah. a lot of times back then like you know there's recordings of valentino mm. right who died you know uh before talkies came in but there's no recordings of, of semen and it, that's actually a really interesting question because um he like would he end up sounding like jerry lewis you know, like it really is interesting to think of what Stephen yeah. might have sounded like. Yeah, Mabel yeah. Norman. Mabel Norman's another one. What would Mabel Norman have sounded like yeah. if she had kept going? Yeah, you absolutely. Know? Yeah. So, because when, when did Seaman die? Twenty-eight. He was twenty-eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I, uh, I think when we were talking last time, he had uh, he shot his last film at the Roach Studios. That's right. I think yeah. I think around the same time as, you know, or not too far away from uh, Battle of the Century, like late twenty seven, early twenty eight, and it would have been interesting to go, you know, have him encounter Stan and Babe on a, a Roach lot, uh, you know, just when his career was totally fizzling out at that point, and theirs was just on the rise. You know, these two these two guys who had worked with him in support and now have you know exceeded him 
and would exceed him far more than he ever was. Like, though Stephen was hugely popular in the 20s, Laurel and Hardy's popularity in the 30s was, you know, far beyond that, right? Oh, at last you're beginning to get someplace. What's interesting about the period of, let's say, that very late silent period is I don't think there's anyone who was making short comedies at that point that anyone would remember today. Um, you know, like Lloyd Hamilton, I think it even stopped for a while. The the Senate comedies are, uh, you know, he doesn't have that, he has Billy Bavan still, he has Carol Lombard, he has D Daphne Pollard, but he, doesn't, he has Andy Clyde, but he doesn't have that star power anymore, right? And uh, they just seem to lose their their steam a lot of that point. You know, those, you know, Senate had big plans to do, that he did build a massive studio that ultimately bankrupted him. Uh, but the the two real shorts, boy, they seem to be running out of steam around this point. Overall, you know, there's um, a lot of situation comedies, like uh, a lot based on comic strips, like um, you know. Uh, Trudeauville Trolley, Mickey McGuire, you know, uh, Toots and Casper and Barney Google, uh, you know, there were all these things, the Gumps, Buster Brown. It's, it's strange. There's all these kind of things based on popular uh, comic strips, but I don't think anything that really stands out, you know, Charlie Bowers a few years before that was interesting. He did a lot of stop motion animation with his stuff, very interesting stuff, but nothing it just it seems like a very uninspired period so there's no surprise that any of those people didn't make it into the talkies right like andy clyde at senate did but that's mostly because he uh changed his character you know he was kind of like a jack of all trades during the silence but he developed this old man character into the talkies and and that worked um you know, a few people like Lloyd Hamilton did some talkies for Senate. Lupino Lane kept going, but they didn't sustain. Like nobody, nobody had any staying power after that. You know, uh, Snub Pollard was making, and Ben Turpin. Like Ben Turpin's another one, right? He was doing. He went to work for the Weiss brothers after Senate, and um, you know, he was a sight gag. Yeah. Right. So. Yes. Yeah, that's you know, right. Yeah. He would do little cameos, very much like the one in Our Wife, yeah. where he'd show up and just make a joke of, hey, it's Ben Turpin, right? And that was, that was the joke, right? Um, but nobody really kind of made that leap, you know? Mickey Rooney did as Mickey McGuire, you know? He, did, he kept doing those for a few years, and then he became Mickey Rooney. But, you know, and there's lots, but there's lots of good character actors, like Johnny Arthur, who was in Pick a Star and a bunch of the Our Gang things. They're there, the, the talent's there, but they just weren't operating at the same level, you know? Um, yeah, I suppose, I suppose I mean, obviously, Edgar Kennedy had a decent career in talkies. Um, yeah. And Thelma but that's because he was at Roach. Through. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? uh, I imagine Thelma Todd wasn't even in the silence, was she? So, um, although she no. did, was she in some silence for in some of the other studios? Yeah, she was in some silent films. I can't think of any on top of my head, but yeah. Uh, so she, so she did technically transfer into talkies and had, had a yeah. decent career. So yeah, she's another one really. But the key to it is, is, you know, again, it's it's Roach. It's funny. I was going to just 
I was going back to snub Pollard for a minute because he did a series again for the Weiss brothers, like uh, Ben Turpin, who's like very, very cut rate stuff um, with a, a fellow named uh, Marvin Loback. And Marvin Loback is just a big obese fellow who's generally his character name in the shorts is fat. It's like, <laughs> snubbing, snubbing. like that's how much imagination went into the film. And, um, you know, there's, there's a couple where they're just, they're basically there to do Laurel and Hardy. You yeah. know, snub has altered. It's kind of like, you know, back then a lot of, uh, like Larry Seaman kind of became a little bit more Harry Langdon-ish yeah. in his later films and his behavior, right. right? So Ben Turpin becomes a little bit more Stan and Marvin Loback, Marvin Loback's like Oliver Hardy if you removed all the charisma. <laughs> you know? um, so he's just basically there to be a, a, a bossy guy with snub. But it's funny, there's one called, um, hang on, what's the name of that film that I'm thinking of? Uh, the Big Shot, where they're reporters. So Marvin Loback's a reporter and snubs a cameraman. And they want to capture a story on a Scottish person. I forget what he is. He's like a millionaire or an inventor or something like that. So to do this, it involves Snub putting on kilts. Right? So he, and that's the whole reason for him to put on kilts is because he has to go encounter a Scots person and hopefully be accepted. So there's gags around that, but the gag is, you know, his skirt keeps getting billowed up, right? No matter what, right? So I think he actually does the thing from putting pants on filth where he walks over a grade and the, the kilts go up. He's changing a tire on a car and every time another car goes by, his kilt goes flying up. But that's all there is kind of to it, right? Whereas, you know, with putting pants on Philip, everything happens for a reason, right? Like Stan is from Scotland, um, you know, he has to get pants. There's a story there, right? That 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 goes somewhere versus it's it's just and they do more interesting things with it. You know, when Stan, you know, takes the snuff and his his shorts fall down. <laughs> yes. You know, it's yes. it's it's not just hey my kilt has gone up for the fifteenth time. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like different different things, and that's again the whole the whole difference. So I think a lot of the the late silence. We're still in that frame of mind. Like it's interesting to see how they would be seen as old-fashioned. Yeah. Even in in nineteen twenty nine, they you know they tried with some stuff. Senate with his shorts with um, Carol Lombard, you know, where it'd be like you know, sassy, sexy girls in a campus and that kind of thing. You know, trying to keep up with the times, but the, the mentality of the gags was still too dated, right? And, and, you know, in that direction, Laurel and Hardy really did just change everything. And you can credit, you know, Leo McCary for that. Um, you can credit the entire vibe at the Roach Studio with Charlie Chase and, and his approach to comedy. But, um, you know, I would just ask anyone to name anyone from who was doing silent comedy and 1928 to come up with anyone except maybe Lloyd Hamilton. Like if you're, you know, you know, not a huge nerd like me, but you know, 
a semi-nerd who's into this stuff and go, yeah, okay, Lupino Lane and Lloyd Hamilton, but it's, it's kind of hard to kind of go, who were those standout people, you know? Um, oh, you know who was really interesting? Um, you were talking about Ben Modell. He, he worked on a uh, release of Edward Everett Horton. Oh, so, yes. Yes, yes. Which yes. Um, those are interesting because they were produced by Harold Lloyd because he had, uh, you know, he had the studio, he had downtime, let's make some movies over there. And it is interesting to see somebody that you're so familiar with as with a very distinctive voice, right? In, in a silent comedy. And it works, you know, it totally works. Um, I wonder how much of it is that you could imagine his voice, right? Because that's an interesting thing with, with Laurel and Hardy's silence is you can imagine their voices which people in 1928, 29 didn't have that advantage. No, that's true. That's a good right? point. Yeah, that's a good um, point. But they're really nicely done films, but again, because they're so personality driven, you know, um, you know, they have their slapstick moments in them, et cetera, but it, it makes a difference. Um, so to, to your listeners, check that out if you can. Uh, Edward Horton's uh, silent films from Undercrank Productions, courtesy of, of Ben Modell. And there's a little... Uh, little ad for him yeah i think ben had just brought that dvd out um when i spoke to him last i seem to remember it was yeah. sitting on his piano and he was just giving it a little plug that was good oh, okay. um, but yeah just i mean just going back to the you know the the quality of the roach um product um and it's certainly you know just looking at the all the trade papers from the, from around that period and yes i think it's the longevity of the roach two reelers went beyond any of the other studios um and i think it's oh, entirely it's a testament to how determined Roach always was to promote that product and, and also maintain the quality of the product. That was always mm-hmm. a huge thing for the Roach studios, the quality of those. And they kept banging on about the, the quality has to be the same as if it was a feature film. And if, yeah. you know, if you don't put that kind of quality into it, it's just going to die on its arse. And even to the point where I was reading just the other day, how Roach was really determined. He was going to open uh, theatres that were just for um, shorts that they weren't going to have features in they were oh, yeah? just going to run shorts all day long you know and that was going to be their kind of big home of uh, uh, and I think he don't I think he maybe even signed uh, a lease for a building at one point it was really going pushing forward for this um, you know well into the talkie period um, but uh, yeah again it's just a testament to his vision and his determination that his product was going to be absolute quality um, yeah. and it was going to be on par with features uh, for, from any studio. Um, yeah. And that's why, that's why they stand the test of time today. Well, they, they are, they don't look cheap. No. You know, um, you know, even the ones where they're just in a boarding house, they don't, they don't feel cheap. No. You know, but no. when you look at like a Lloyd Hamilton short from 1931, mm. it looks cheap. You know, you can look at the Senate stuff like the Bing Crosby's. Um, you know, there's something that's just a little, and it might, you know what, in fairness, it might just be because only bad quality prints exist. But you know what, I watched bad quality prints of Laurel and Hardy, you know, yeah, when, yeah, when yeah. I first saw them and I was fine with them. But they just, they just seem creaky. So it's, it's yeah. really a testament to Roach was that they were able to make that transition so smoothly mm. because they were, they had almost had that mentality because everything was so reality based. Yeah. In, in their heads in terms yeah. of their characters like there's nothing in a charlie chase film that is impossible 
right? Yeah. That's what Keaton went on, you know, about impossible gags too. Like it's, you know, he's a bit like, you know, he's like Dick Van Dyke. He's like an everyman. Uh, you know, he gets into embarrassing situations, but and they can be ludicrous, yes. but they can't be unacceptable. Yeah. yeah. You know, and and you know, he's able to carry that over, you know, very very well. Um, I, th I think he, um, I mean, you, you could, you could, you know, talk, talk about this far better than I could. I, my, my sort of experience outside of the Laurel and Hardy canon is, is quite limited. But if I compare any, anything to Laurel and Hardy, it's always going to come off worse. Because I think the quality for me, although production value was, was such with the Roach Studio that it was quality, the quality mm. for me comes from the performances from Stan and Babe. There's nobody like those two. Um, no. And that's so. So it could be the cheapest production going, but if those two are in it, they are going to lift that without a shadow of a doubt. So I think it would be fairer to judge the Roach output outside of the Laurel and Hardy comedies, the Hour Gangs and All Stars and whoever else, Charlie Chase. How do they compare with other studios' output? I mean, are they still better comedies? Oh yeah, because, absolutely. Because of the quality of the production. It's the qual. It's two things: quality of production, and you know, in all of them are most of the series. The Our Gangs, most of all, in the early talkies, are clumsy, hmm. right? Like they took. I think it feels like they all took about a, a season, like eight shorts, before they got their their uh, wheels happening with most of them. But that yeah. must have been a nightmare for McGowan to get to get those kids talking, you know, and acting. Oh, yeah. that, oh my God! Can you imagine? I mean, having well, you, kids myself, you know what it's like trying to <laughs> trying to get them to do something. Oh man, you know, you've well, got to take your hat off to Bob McGowan for doing that. Well, you can still see the style change because it, everything is like all the dialogue is like single shots, choppy. Yeah, I can, yeah, yeah, I can it's, imagine. It's that. very choppy, but um, and I think again that was a reason to bring in Edgar Kennedy. Uh, right, you right. Know, to kind of take some of it on. I mean, it's remarkable, like I said earlier, that they shot these films with them speaking French and Spanish. It's yeah, yeah. easier to speak Spanish, right? Yeah. They bring That's in a couple nice. ringers to do the heavy lifting. Like they would bring in a, a you know, a little French girl who you've never seen anywhere else and she right. carry a lot of the dialogue. But, you know, Jackie Cooper and Marianne Jackson, they're all um, you know, doing their bit. And the, I think the thing is with, with the Roach films, fundamentally, is that they're charming. Yes, yeah. They're, and that, like, and I'll go even to the, the you know, the, the Todd uh, Pitts ones as well. Mm. Harry mm. Langdon one, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say they're charming. Um, they're interesting, absolutely. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a, it's hard to describe. It's always hard to describe a film nobody's ever seen. But there's a Todd Pitts one where um, they're dance hall girls. Mm. And a certain number of things happen. And it turns out that Thelma gets a black eye at the end. Right. right? There's a, some kind of fight. And then she realizes that the bruise on her face has the imprint of Zazu Pitt's ring. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, you know, just Zazu's reaction, and then Thelma just laughs, and they hug each other. Right. And it doesn't feel forced at all. It feels like these are two... Because Todd is remarkable, right? Um, but it feels like they're just two friends doing this. And the Our Gang kids are natural as can be, mm. um, you know, once they find their groove. 
Um, Chase is just naturally charismatic and you put him yeah. in a room with Thelma Todd in something like the pit from Pittsburgh and you know those are fireworks yeah right? like a lot of the, the Chase and Thelma Todd he wanted to do a series with her apparently and Roach went no I'll do this with Zazie Pitts instead but uh, their films together are spectacular if you haven't seen those no but no I haven't seen them no but but across the board Universal is that they're charming charming films that couldn't have come from anywhere else. You can't yeah. imagine Senate doing a charming film. Yeah, yeah. You know, some of the Andy Clyde stuff, there's an Andy Clyde short called Dora's Dunkin' Donuts right. that has Shirley Temple in it, right? a very young Shirley Temple in it. And it's a, it's a charming film. He's a nice, likable character. It would have been interesting to see what Andy Clyde could have done Yeah, yeah. at Roach instead of he went to Columbia, which was, you know, Three yeah. Stooges land. Um, but it just seems everybody was elevated at Roach. And I do think, you know, back to Edgar Kennedy, that he couldn't have had his every man series or the average man series that lasted him mm. from what, 32 till 48 till he died, um, without having had that training at Roach for those couple yeah. years he was there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting side note Scott McGillivray. Uh, who yeah. wrote the 44 book, found a memo where when Edgar Kennedy died, they were talking about having uh, Hardy step in to take over really? the series. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It was Hal Yates who was one of the directors, and he worked on, uh, I think he, he directed uh, Hats Off. Um, yeah. yeah. But there's a memo where it's like, you know, is Oliver Hardy available? Is, are, are they retired? What's happening with them? Wow. That's interesting. Right? But, yeah. but that could have been interesting. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. It's like oh, the um, the Hardy Family series. Yeah, I was just going to say that, yeah. I always yeah. wish they had done one. Yeah. You know, it would have been nice if they did just, because the script is great. Yeah. No, I think um, I think we've we've probably sucked the life out of the silent uh, the silent period now, and it's been it's been an absolute pleasure to um, to cover these films. Thank you for for being with me on three episodes, four episodes if you count the bonus. Yeah, um, there's a bonus. There's a bonus, and also there's going to be a Patreon section as well, of course. <gasps> so so um, I'm going to I'm going to well we will say goodbye to uh, to our listeners for this episode Chris if you're happy to hang around uh, we'll do a special um, bonus episode for the the patrons of the podcast um, and I'm going to find out which um, which films you would like to banish to Bogeyland no, well not that you'd like to banish to Bogeyland I'm forcing you to banish some to if, Bogeyland if forced to yes um, <laughs> well it's been a, in a, it's been a pleasure um, I think this conversation will put your editing skills to the test um, especially but, with the strange dog noises in the background with the strange dog noises in the background um, but uh, you know it's, it's a treat it's, it's, it's a treat to pre-associate about Laurel and Hardy with somebody who, who so obviously loves them as, as much as I do no, and, absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah. to think I'm doing my little thing to go hey you know what you have a whole other thing open to you too with with the other Roach series, which I can't recommend highly enough. So. Yeah, I'm going to have to check them out. I have to make the time because, um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's it, what what I love about it is it's like the it's like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it's the it's the Hal Roach Cinematic Universe. It's all those characters showing up in all these different films in the universe. There, it's beautiful. Love it. Well, it is, and that's why it's not surprising when you see like Stan and Babe show up at the end of On the Loose with Todd. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, right? of course. course they're there, right? Yeah. Of course, yeah. of course they're hitchhiking in a Charlie Chase film. Why wouldn't they? Be, <laughs> yeah, right? That's right, exactly. Um, you know, uh, of course Kennedy the cop is with Laurel and Hardy one day and with Farina the yeah. next day. You yeah. know, it's just they're yeah. all in the same place. That's it. And it's the locations as well, of course, isn't it? It's the locations, it's the music, yeah. it's the, the yeah, music. The house style. The the Halbrooch yeah. house style. It's just yeah. wonderful. Chris, thank you so much. Sir. It's been an absolute Thanks, blast. Chris. And uh, hopefully we'll see you on the flip side. We'll see you in the talkies. And uh, all the best to you. All right. Thank you, Patrick. And uh, thanks again. Well, my friends, that's it. The final silent short covered. The end of an era. And indeed, the end of season one of the Laurel and Hardy podcast. 34 films covered from The Lucky Dog to Angora Love. A quick reminder for the signed-up patrons of the podcast, uh, your bonus podcast will be available within the next few days, so do look out for that. And remember, if you're not a patron yet and you'd like to be and gain access to more exclusive podcasts and more besides, then visit www.patreon.com forward slash Laurel and Hardy podcast or click on the link in the podcast show notes and it'll take you straight there. And talking of bonus podcasts, as you've all had to wait a little longer than normal for this episode, there is another bonus episode on the very near horizon where I'll be welcoming Chris Sagan back and we'll be taking one last retrospective look at the boys' entire silent period and waving a fond farewell before our focus turns to season two and the talkies. Uh, And one more thing on the horizon uh, that I should mention is issue four of the Laurel and Hardy magazine. In this issue, we're focusing on big business, and you won't believe the amount of top-draw contributors involved in this issue. The magazine should be going to print uh, this week, so subscribers, you should easily receive your copies well before Christmas. If you're not a subscriber yet, you can sign up on our website, which is www.laurelandhardyfilms.com. So that is it for today. A huge thank you to our guest, Chris Sagan. Uh, Also, I'd like to say a very uh, big thank you to members of our Blogheads Facebook group for your contributions to this episode of Angora Love, uh, specifically Mike Fitzpatrick, Lorenzo DeLuca and Gary Dent. Thank you, guys. Um, And thank you, as always, to the Bohunks Orchestra for the fabulous music. And thank you to you for joining me, not only today, but throughout this entire first season of podcasts. It's been such an enjoyable and informative journey, especially for me, uh, and I really hope that you'll continue to travel alongside me as we switch lanes and tackle the talkies. Uh, Please don't forget, leave your comments uh, on social media and your reviews on Apple Podcasts. It really goes a huge way to highlight this uh, podcast to other people who haven't discovered as yet. So until next time, it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. Goodbye from him. Goodbye. And a very goodbye from me. Goodbye.